0: Welcome to the PID um, Pakistan Innovation Center webinar. It's a collaboration between the Pakistan Innovation Foundation, I should say, Pakistan Innovation Foundation, um, founded by Arthur Osama and PID, which is an old think tank. We are collaborating on a series of webinars to try and understand innovation. Many of us have now come to understand after much research and debate that the path to growth and welfare is innovation and entrepreneurship. Whereas in the past, we used to think that it was important to find funding and to find money and to build large projects. Now it seems that the path to to growth and development and welfare of the people is innovation, entrepreneurship. And anybody studying entrepreneurship and innovation will have to or cannot miss what's happened in China over the last 20, 30 years. A phenomenal episode has taken place, which is the first in human history where a developing country has made huge strides, growing a double digit growth for about 30 years and developed a whole new setup Not only for development, but also for innovation entrepreneurship. Now, China, if I am not mistaken, and our guests will confirm it, is competing with the US in terms of innovation and patents. And in many areas, like 5G, for example, China has got the US nervous. So, it is an important system to learn from. And this is why Athar Osama recommended that we study the Chinese. Innovation entrepreneurship model. So, I'm extremely, extremely grateful to Atrasama for suggesting um, this, um, uh, this webinar to us and developing this collaboration for us with uh, Hong Kong, with China, and with other places. So, we will try and study the Chinese innovation and entrepreneurship system and learn from it, see what we can learn from it for Pakistan. So let us, without further ado, I don't want to take up too much time. Let us turn to our panel. Let me briefly introduce our panel, although you can see uh, on this slide, their introduction and their names and their affiliations. We've got Ms. Peggy Lu, chairperson um, of JUCCCE, the organization behind the greening of China, which is very interesting. China is now moving to greening the economy. We've also got Professor Har Sharif from the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. We've got Mr. Athar Mansoor, civil servant and a researcher on Chinese science and innovation at HKUST, which is, I think a rare opportunity. So I hope Athar Mansoor will tell us some very interesting things. And then of course, we've got Dr. Athar Osama, who as I said is, is quite a champion for innovation, former member, member of the planning commission and founder of the Pakistan Innovation Foundation. So with that, let me ask Peggy Liu to tell us about the Chinese system. How is it that China has been able to develop innovation entrepreneurship in the last 30 years, while countries like us who have been trying for 70 years have not succeeded? So would you briefly, Peggy, tell us what your system is, and how is it that, uh, I mean, what are the lessons that we can learn from? So over sure. to
1: you, Peggy. Thank you so much. And thank you, uh, Dr. Osama, for inviting me, everybody on this panel in the think tank. It's such a pleasure to be able to have this forum, to have Pakistani and Chinese relations. Uh, this is such an amazing opportunity. I do invite all of you to continue uh, to talk to me if you have any further questions after this. Of course, when I usually speak about China, it takes me at least 40 minutes to talk about the basic greening of China. Uh, and if I do this in 10 minutes, is very difficult. So I'm going to just talk very top level. Uh, of course, there's many, many, many different stories I can tell you, but first I, I want to tell you that it is possible. I'll give you six examples um, of changes that I've seen in China that I've been directly involved in. So one is, I think it's so important as human beings that you know that we have no boundaries that we have infinite possibilities. So I'm gonna start there. Two, I'm going to talk about some of the levels of innovation that a lot of people don't put together when they think about what is an intervention that can increase innovation locally. Okay, so those are the two things that I hope to accomplish and then we can go from there. When I started joint US-China collaboration on clean energy in 2007, it was out of the first public dialogues between these two governments on clean energy. And what they said shocked me, which is that they had 60 MOUs between the two countries and nothing tangible to show for it. So clearly at this moment, the two countries wanted at that governmental level to collaborate, but they didn't really know how to bridge the gap. So I think most of the collaboration efforts fall because they don't understand each other's language at the bare minimum, the culture, and then what do they consider success? So for Chinese people at that moment, what they considered success was a picture of a building or some hardware infrastructure that a mayor could stand in front of and claim victory, right? But for the US, it was much more like IP and more complex outcomes. So they, they couldn't even understand what the success uh, measures were to get started. And then the cultural barriers were just too great to uh, get beyond. So for example, in uh, Chinese culture, you really, you should have dinner together three times and really get to know each other before you talk specific details, whereas the U.S. people like to just go straight into here's the transaction that I'm interested in, let's talk business. And so for Chinese that's a little off-putting. So um, what what my advantage was is that I was born and raised in the U.S. to a first uh, generation of Chinese that moved to the U.S. and we're now all in Shanghai. So it's still a very Chinese family, but I'm very steeped in American culture. So was, I went to MIT and Harvard and McKinsey in Los Angeles, Silicon Valley and internet, uh, you know, the first boom there. So I understand American business. So my advantage is I sat in the middle as a bridge. I think that this is important not just for geographical bridges, but it's also important for all of the different silos, all the different disciplines that are required to come together when you talk about holistic system transformation. So we're not just talking about solar or wind or public utilities. We're really talking about a whole ecosystem, an urban ecosystem. And actually, it's not just hardware, it's also software and much more. So we were um, very, very successful since 2007 in transforming China. And I couldn't really explain why until honestly last year why we were successful. But let me just walk you through. In 2007, we brought brought this new concept into China. Nobody had heard of this concept before. It's called smart grid. And this is essentially revolutionizes the entire electricity system. Now, today, China is the leader in smart grid. About two and a half years after we started this, the state grid of China committed $7.2 billion to implement smart grid across the country by 2020. Of course, this has now blown up to about 500 smart cities, a much bigger investment. And um, again, China has completely reformed its electrical system. A lot more to go, but it's a completely different system. At the same time, we were asked by the government, one of the ministries, Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, to teach the first classes to mayors across the country how to build cities sustainably. And and so,
0: so, Can I just ask you to explain what a smart grid is? Because I certainly don't know. Most of us don't know, so can you please?
1: So I, I would say the easiest way to explain it is the old landlines, the rotary phones, basically you, you just had one way communication, right? So this is the same with coal fired uh, power plants. You just have ele- electricity just pushed through to the person that pours the tea, right? Whereas a smart grid is like internet where every single node in the mesh, in the network can talk to each other. And so if there's a break in the system, when I was young growing up, we would have like thunderstorms and then a line, electricity line would go down and the whole neighborhood wouldn't have electricity because it's only going one way. So it's serial, it's not parallel. So I mean, electrical engineering type of speak. So so smart grid allows you to bypass, reroute, because every single node is connected. So there's a lot of different things that you can do, but one of the most important consequences for this is, is that you can take intermittent variable energy, variable levels of energy. So solar is high in day, wind is high in night, right? So whereas the old school uh, source of energy is coal-fired power plant that just Always gives you the same amount of energy. So th- this this is the gateway to clean energy. This market is much more complicated. I mean, I can speak for days about what is smart grid, but that's the basic. Um, it revolutionizes every single part of electricity generation and and delivery. That's 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 sort of the end end all. So we we were asked to teach the first eco city classes to mayors across China. We did this for about eight years, teaching a thousand mayors and central government officials across China, small and large towns, rural towns to big cities, uh, how to build eco-cities. Again, this is the first ever classes to this level government. And I brought in experts from around the world where the mayors or deputy mayors, uh, London to uh, the sustainability head of New York City, to uh, Salt Lake City for light rail. Um, and we covered every aspect of building a city from low carbon transport, clean energy to um, sustainable lifestyle, etc. So there's many layers to an, an urban city. So we created curriculum for the Chinese government and now all of that is online as well. Um, and of course we started off as Clean Energy Conference. So in 2007, this kicked off the momentum towards adoption of clean energy. So if you look at when did China actually first start investing heavily in clean energy, it was 2007. So some of it was, I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Some of it was, we were ready, uh, China was ready and open and the US was very interested in working with China. So it was just a lot of things that helped uh, you know, China just catapult clean energy. So now you probably know that China is the largest generator um, and manufacturer of clean energy in in terms of ecosystem. So those are three. And then in 2010, um, I I started to look at uh, non-infrastructure related things because I realized that sustainability is a balance. It's a formula of supply and demand. And so I can't just keep working on supply, energy efficient supply, I have to also work on reducing demand. So I did a lot of research on how do you change behavior in the society. And this became a a conversation around the country called China Dream. And when Xi Jinping came into office in 2012, October, uh, he adopted that term and now it's the national slogan. And so the idea was that the China dream, it is embedded into the China dream is a green China, is an ecological civilization. You don't have, don't even have to talk about it, it just is. So that was the purpose of that. Um, I believe in 2008 or nine, I started uh, with, with GE and Philips Lighting and Citibank and PWC, L'Oreal and many other corporate entities and um, celebrities, we ran a campaign to ask people to bring in their old incandescent light bulbs and we would give them free up to six energy efficient light bulbs. And now uh, China is the leader in energy efficient lighting, the leader in LED lighting anywhere in the world. Uh, In, I think it was 2010, I can't remember which year, I went to Davos and uh, I sat in with some people talking about clean um, climate finance. And I told them very clearly that the way to do this is through green bonds, and I told them how to do it. So I ended up partnering with somebody called um, Sean, um, uh, Sh- Sean at Climate Bonds Initiative in London, um, Kidney. and he and I started talking about a, creating a white paper, just like we did for smart grid. What is What is smart grid? How does it benefit China? Here are the first steps. And then you create a conversation around it. You create momentum and you get the actors in there that are the decision makers, the acupuncture points for change. And so the same thing happened with green bonds. And he really took this forward uh, with many other people. And now China is I think one of the leaders in the world in green bonds. So the first one was issued by HSBC. I, I may have missed one, but there, there's, there's six innovations that Juice and I were smack in the middle. We, we created that innovation, we created that change. And so now I can go back and explain to you very clearly how did we create this level of change? How is it that not only did we create the change, but it was such a tipping point in the society that China became the leader around the world in this particular area, right? So I'll, I'll tell you just very shortly what I think the formula is, um, and of course I have many many talks that go into these this detail. So one is that change is the only constant in physics. Entropy is the only constant in physics. Right. So entropy is essentially expansion, right? Expanding universe. Expansion is creation, right? So. All of our current governance systems that I see, especially in the West, are based on keeping your assets, keeping your territory, keeping your boundaries, making sure that nothing changes because you want to protect it. Whereas really in life, the only chain, only constant is change. And so what you need is a governance system that thrives on change. Every single aspect from local to national to international must welcome and embrace and thrive in change. And I know this is easy to say, but COVID has really helped us digest it in ourselves that change is the only constant. Now you take that core fundamental axiom and you try to apply it to governance. We should be running with nimble communities. We should have nimble councils that are experts and not voted in, right? But they, uh, we, we should have, we, we, in our hearts, not just like in our heads, like uh, measurement systems. In our hearts, we want to, th- we need to embrace change and thrive in change. Now, why is it that China is able to do this? Because they had nothing. They had war. They had famine. They had a lot of death. So every day, every day has been a better day. Every day, even though it's great change and sometimes a lot of dust, 10 years of dust of change and new policies every day are very confusing. New platforms, new, new technologies, new words, new slogans. It's very confusing, it's very hard to keep track of, but maybe you don't need to keep track of it. Maybe you just thrive in the change you, and you see it as a benefit because every single day in China since 2004, since I've been here, has been a better day. So when you go to China, you will see very hopeful people. Even if COVID is here, even if you have pollution, if you, even if you have construction, even if you have a bad day, every day is a hopeful day. This is the biggest difference, right? So one is change is the only constant. The other one is if you cannot imagine it, you cannot build it. So my friends at the World Economic Forum in Africa that deal with Chinese state-owned enterprises to invest in Africa say, the biggest difference between the West dealing with us and the Chinese dealing with us is they'll come to Africa and they'll see a great piece of land, barren piece of land, nothing there. And the Western people will come and say, oh, so far behind, so much work to do. Don't know if this will ever You know, become a modern developed society. Whereas the Chinese people will look at this barren piece of land and say, "Wow, this reminds me of Shenzhen just 30 years ago, just 50 years ago. It was a fishing village. Now Shenzhen is the capital, financial capital of China, uh, the innovation capital of China for hardware, right?" So. Chinese people will come in and say, wow, we want to invest now. We want to build with you now because we know that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, this is going to, this can be a Shenzhen of Africa, okay? So as you see, the imagination is there. So I'll give you a very simple example. Roger Bannister was the first person ever in the world to run a, a, a mile under four minutes. And before this, every single person said that this is physically, humanly impossible. Four minutes is the barrier. And he's a neuroscientist. So somehow, he trained himself and was able to break the four-minute mile. And so what happened? Immediately after that, many people started to break the four-minute mile. So you see, it's not that we have human physical barriers here in our cells, in our bones, it's we have barriers in our imagination in our dream state in our heart and so my greatest lesson to you is is that with the smart grid we started with a, a white paper that drew a picture of what smart grid is we said here's here's how it's going to benefit china with the eco cities every single class we did 15 minute videos of any best practice public uh, public square um public spaces to low carbon uh, transport to eco haters tourism, I, I took best practices, and I made a little 15 minute video out of it. I allowed them to imagine what could be in their town, in their city, because they don't travel. So they couldn't even imagine what Brian Park looks like, what Kaikoura New Zealand looks like, right? But with a short 15 minute video, I can stir their imagination I can let them see that we can go to the moon. This is what JFK did. He let the Americans stir their imagination. So for every single one of these projects, I created a space, a safe space, to allow people to co-create, to curate their collective imagined reality. And we did it with such great detail, like James Cameron with the Avatar world in his movies or George Lucas with Star Wars in that world, or Lewis Carroll with Alice in Wonderland. You, you imagine it in such great detail that when you describe it, people already feel like they're there, right? So if you can't talk about demand-side management and what that does for you, what does that mean on a daily basis in the home and in the factories, then it can never be because people don't know what they're building towards. This is the biggest problem with innovation, is how do you curate, co-create imagination of a reality that everybody is joyful about? That they're so joyful about it, they want to jump into it now, right? So if if somebody here on the panel were to describe to me a beautiful Pakistan with the beautiful mountains, beautiful food, beautiful women and men, beautiful children, What does that life look like? And if you were able to get me, who I've never been to Pakistan before, but I'm like, oh, you know, Athar, I need to get there now. Please get me on a plane. I want to be there now. Then everything else is easy because 95% of what people do is subconscious, subconscious. right? So you build this imagined reality into people's subconscious and when they sleep at every moment in the day, every single cell in their body is trying to make this a reality together so the only job of an innovator leader is to create the safe space and to create the platform to make sure that every image is joyful that it makes everybody joyful so if there's an image that one person likes but everybody else doesn't like it throw it away that's what i did with china dream every single workshop of 25 people I designed it with advertising agencies. We went and did workshop after workshop after workshop with mayors to Unilever people, to uh, artists, to press people, to health people, to real estate people. They gave me the pictures. They gave me the words. And then I went back at night and I curated them. So obviously, if somebody says, boy, it's really joyful for me to have a Hummer, you know, big fossil fuel car, I'm going to go back at night and take that image out. (laughs) <laughs> because I know that that's not going to be what most people are joyful about, right? So my biggest, my biggest, biggest, biggest lesson to you is we're completely doing innovation wrong. It's not about a protocol, a network protocol. It's not about hardware. It's not about uh, three scenarios for the future. It's not about anything with numbers. It's about the heart and the, the dream, the imagination. And that, it's so simple. Children can do it. Actually, children can do it better than you can. Sorry. <laughs> children can do it better. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm working with Gen Z. It's called facebook.com my.limitless.imagination. They are interviewing people, and they're creating their collective reality, that they, the world that they want to live in. And so once you imagine it, it can be. This is quantum physics. Once you observe it, it exists. We are all infinite potential reality. So now create kinetic reality by imagining it into being. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. And when COVID is over, we have to correct this mistake. We have to get you to I think you are such innovative, uh, sort of a motivated, motivational speaker. I, mean, it's, I think you've made some wonderful points. I really appreciate what you've said. It's wonderful. Um, but a couple of things that I'm a little confused about, I'll come to you about those, but let me bring in Professor Sharif. Professor Sharif, uh, Peggy has said that the Chinese political system is far more capable of keeping up with the changing world of, um, how should I say, of, um, of innovating, of being capable of listening um, of capable of changing with the world, we have been taught through school and many books, etc., that it is the uh, American system or democracy or the open system that, as Moglu and Robinson, for example, write uh, write in the In My Nations Fail, that that system is more amenable to change and uh, um, and uh, and bringing innovation. But Peggy Lewis turned that on its head. Would you agree with that, or how would you? Do that. Over to you, Mr. Sharif. Professor Sharif.
2: Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ms. Peggy Liu, as well, for your very inspirational talk. I mean, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and move from a practitioner's perspective to an analyst's perspective and discuss my analysis of China's innovation system. And uh, to kick off, I'll, I'll, I'll address uh, Professor Nadim Huck's question directly um, insofar as what kind of a system is the best system to promote innovation. And as as Ms. Liu has mentioned, and as you have alluded to, Mr. Uh, Professor Huck, I think the Chinese have demonstrated beyond doubt that it is not just one kind of system that can succeed in terms of promoting innovation. So the American system characterized by democracies, characterized by the free market, um, where the government takes a a backish seat and does not intervene directly we've been taught as being a superior system but funnily enough if we look at not just china uh, china's innovation system but many other countries innovation systems as they have developed throughout history including the german innovation system the swiss innovation system the japanese innovation system not to mention even the american innovation system back during the period between world war one and up until just after the end of World War II, we find that government intervention is funnily enough, extremely important and necessary for the development of an innovation system. Here, I'm not not talking about an economic system. I would like to distinguish between an economic system and an innovation system. In order to promote innovation, the government needs to play a leading role. So I think what Ms. Liu has been saying is beyond doubt, correct in so far as what the Chinese have been doing by the government taking a leading role is not new. They are merely le- replicating what many other countries have done in the recent or not so recent past, including those countries that I just mentioned previously. So the American government today might tout the, the necessity of having a free and open market. But that is not to say that they have always been non-interventionist themselves. So I'd like to go back to the period of the Second World War. And during that period, the Americans themselves espoused an Hamiltonian philosophy, which said that in order to promote innovation in a country, the federal government must pair up or team up or cooperate with large enterprises in their country. And surely enough, the American government was a leading player in promoting innovation post-Second World War America, not least through military uh, spending in R&D, but also through teaming up with large companies um, locally. So through that pairing, American companies were among the first to develop um, first-rate industrial in-house R&D labs. That is just one example that I alluded allude to that goes to show the importance of the government taking a leading role. Now, with the Chinese, coming back to the China case, with the Chinese being an autocratic government, it has, it receives, it has received, it continues to receive a lot of criticism for its heavy handedness, for its secrecy, for its autocratic style of governance. But as far as innovation is concerned, that has worked perfectly in the case of China. The government's leading role is one of three factors, I argue, that has allowed China to become such an active and leading innovation uh, country in today's world. The fact that the government has been playing a leading role has distinguished it from other developing countries. Yes, you may argue that China is no longer a developing country today, it is already well developed, but China's efforts to innovate Uh, Led by a strong role played by the government can be traced back as far back as the late 1990s at least. And so 20, 25 years ago when China started this process of trying to strengthen its innovation system. It was, it was one of the few countries that was developing at that time in 1995, 1997, 1999 that made serious efforts to look towards a future and realize for itself, as Ms. Liu said, a future where they were not as dependent on population advantages as they have been over the last four decades. It was a future where they envisioned a leading and dominant role played by innovation. And sure enough, when we come to 2020, we see that innovation in China has taken off dramatically, both at the governmental level and also more more importantly, at the business level. And that has been a result of this concerted and continuous effort that the Chinese government have had um, to play over the last three decades. Now, I mentioned that there are three main factors that have led to China's ascent as a technological leader in the world today, one of which is a strong role played by the government. Let me just go and and cover the other two factors that I think have, have played a leading role. Uh, the, the second factor is also quite, quite obvious, is that China has the l- world's large domestic market. Now, this, again, is nothing new. Uh, Post-Second World War, it was the United States of America that had the world's largest uh, domestic market. So many companies around the world, including those in the United States, uh, sorry, in Europe, took their innovations to the United States in order to commercialize them Because of the presence of the large American domestic market. Now, today China is replicating what advantage the Americans had 60, 70 years ago. So by having the world's largest domestic market, Chinese companies are in a position to be highly incentivized to try and innovate. The more they can sell their uh, the the larger quantities of the products they can sell, the more likely they are going to be incentivized to make those products and services better. So that is a second factor that has contributed to China's success as a technological leader in the world today. And notice that when I talk about these two factors, um, a leading role played by the government and also a large domestic market, I've already said that these two factors are not factors that are unique to China that are new to China. United States of America of all countries enjoyed these two advantages but only 70 years ago. Now the third factor that has contributed to China's success as a leading innovation uh, economy is something that is more unique to China that the United States of America did not have an advantage of and which may be coming to a to a um, which may be receding now In today's world and that has been the importance and the effect of globalization. How has globalization positively impacted China's role to become a technological leader in the world today? It has done so because in order to acquire the latest scientific research, the latest technologies, the most um, expert human capital required to undertake um, the efforts, the innovation efforts China has realized over the last two decades that they need not do everything on their own. They can take advantage of globalization and simply go outside of their country and acquire or merge a company overseas with a local company. And with a lot of success, Chinese companies have been acquiring assets, companies overseas. Now, to be sure, many of these acquisitions are not technology related, for example, Dalian Wanda bought the AMC um, cinema chain in the United States which is you know not technologically oriented but many of these acquisitions by Chinese companies outside of China have been with a view to obtaining the latest and the highest technology in the industry available anywhere in the world so Chinese companies over the last two decades have become dominant foreign direct investors, so outward foreign direct investment from mainland China into the rest of the world has shot up from the mid 2000, uh, 2004, 2005 onwards, up until quite recently, 2018, 2019. And all of these efforts um, have been characterized quite heavily by the need to acquire technologies, scientific expertise that China domestically is, is weak in. So these three factors combined, a strong role pay, played by the government, the presence of a large domestic market, and exploiting to their advantage the forces of globalization have combined to um, propel China into a leading role insofar as being a technological leader in the globe today. So with those remarks, I'll leave it there and I'll hand over to the next, ses- next speaker because I think I've taken up my allotted 10 minutes. I have more to say, but I'll, I can come back to my remarks in the question and answer session.
0: Thank you, Professor Sharif. I think that's a very succinct uh, sort of presentation and you're absolutely right about uh, the differences between China and the rest of the world. And yes, I buy your story and the role of the government. I think that it's an important story. Um, the US uh, role in science, science uh, sorry, government's role in science and technology has been documented by Mazakuto and many people. And it's an important, important story to bear in mind. But having said that, um, let me turn to uh, 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 Mr. Mansoor in your university, uh, Mansoor, uh, Mr. Mansoor, we have in Pakistan tried to give subsidies for R&D tried to give licenses for innovation, tried to buy technology through foreign investments, such as cars, for example. We've given licenses for the last 70 years, protection for 70 years, but we see no change. So Manzoutab, you've been studying Chinese Indian policy too, and I think I'll bring uh, Professor Sharif and Peggy back into this, but what is your story on this? Why are we failing? What can we learn from China?
3: Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Nadeem. Uh, And I think uh, in case of innovation, it is the productivity of innovation and the management of innovation that are of crucial importance, especially for developing countries like Pakistan, where resources for innovation are limited. Uh, In case of Pakistan, as you have pointed out rightly that we have done and we have Uh, use many policy instruments and we have used many policy tools, but we have not been able to get the results which we wanted to, especially in the civilian sector. Uh, If we see the Chinese story, and if we go through what China has been doing in terms of its journey towards innovation economy, because let me point it out here very clearly that China started its journey, its economic growth as being an imitative economy. Uh, the initial period of China's economic growth was more based on imitation rather than innovation. It was only until uh, it was uh, not until 2006 that officially Chinese government started to use innovation as part of its development strategy. And after 2006, they realized that it was uh, really important for China to get out of middle income trap. And for getting out of that and lifting Chinese out of that middle income trap, it became extremely important to uh, start working towards innovation, which uh, economists call uh, creative destruction. And it is an extremely important thing to adopt in your uh, development strategy when you are moving towards a growth path. So I think it's, again, coming back to my first point, it is the management of innovation and the productivity of innovation, which needs to be uh, taken into account. In, and in the case of China, I guess, and I believe very strongly that as Professor Sharif has also pointed out very clearly, that the rule of government has been very strong and they have been able to get the results, uh, what they wanted. Uh, secondly, I think uh, there has been a lot of research as far as foreign direct investment in case, of China, uh, um, is, uh, in case of China. Because China, uh, after ni- in, the, in the early part of 1990s, was one of the largest recipients of uh, FDI. And this FDI actually played a very significant role in promoting regional innovation capacity in case of China. And we see that the eastern part of China uh, developed a lot in terms of its innovative capacity. And the innovation efficiency of the region was uh, almost reached its peak uh, during the early part of 2000, from 2000 to uh, 2004. But uh, I have to you know, uh, caution the audience and the viewers on the role of FDI, which has been you know, in, in case of many countries, FDI has, FDI has been high. But the countries, many countries and many examples, case studies show us that those countries have been unable to uh, take the real benefit from FDI, which the FDI has the potential to bring for a particular country. In case of China, two things actually played an important role, which a country like Pakistan can also take into account when they are uh, entering into a kind of a collaboration, uh, which Pakistan is entering with China in case of CPEC and in case of the Special Economic Zones, which are being rolled out, and the first has been rolled out recently. So if Chinese foreign direct investment starts coming in industrial sector and in different sectors of the economy, then I think two things which we can learn from China very categorically is that we have to improve our absorptive capacity. And by absorptive capacity, I mean that first I would point out that for significant spillovers from any FDI, the absorptive capacity of local firms and organizations need to be very high. And secondly, there should be sufficient effective linkages between foreign and domestic economic activities. So, if Pakistan uh, wants to really follow that path of industrialization and technological upgradation and catch up, it needs to understand that in the case of uh, a deeper collaboration with industry, industrial cooperation, which is one of the major components and pillars of CPEC. Uh, which is a flagship project of the Belt and Road Initiative, Pakistan needs to enhance its uh, absorptive capacity. Absorptive capacity of a region or a country is actually proxied by the technology gap, uh, which exists between the foreign and the domestic firms. And also the R&D intensities of the local firms or human capital embodied in local firms. So in case of Pakistan, we see that Pakistan's workforce as well as industry, it lacks the necessary absorptive capacity to benefit from any fdi so even if the government uses those policy tools or policy instruments uh, and the government has been you know using them over many years but the results have not been um, you know as as uh, the outcomes have not been so positive for the country secondly i think another thing which china managed a very um, um, i think in a very professional manner was the um, uh, was besides absorptive building absorptive capacities of the local firms and industry was building up of complementary assets which in case of pakistan we also see that there is lack of uh, any focus as far as complementary assets and building those complementary assets are concerned complementary assets is a very you know uh, it's 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 a very widely used uh, terminology and if i just uh, Dissect this term in front of the audience, I would say that it is basically two or three indicators, which, if present in an economy along with absorptive capacity, can help you tread that uh, path of technological upgradation and can help you move up the value chain. For example, in complementary assets, we usually me- ne- measure the number of computers per thousand household. We see the share of value added from high-tech industry and regional total value ad- added products. And we also see the transaction value in technological markets, which measures the extensiveness and depth of technology linkages, flows and transactions in the regions and reflects the development level of the institutions. And finally, I think besides these absorptive capacity and complementary assets, it is the not uh, usually uh, in the research on innovation we have those input side, the input side where we say that R&D expenditure needs to be increased. But as I have pointed out in my, you know, uh, initial argument, that it is not the uh, enhancement or increasing of R&D; it is the management of that innovation or productivity of innovation that needs to be uh, taken into account if you really want to benefit from any innovative, uh, uh, you know, from any innovation, or you want to uh, take your economy to, towards that innovative path. So China, in China's case, uh, the input side also includes uh, not just increasing the R&D because the Chinese strategic document of 2006, uh, when the Chinese R&D was not as high as it is today, the latest World Bank figures put the Chinese R&D as of 2018 to 2.2 percent of their GDP, but they are targeting to bring it to 20, uh, 2.5, and they are almost touching it. So it's one of the it's uh, it's a little bit uh, you know on the higher side if we we see compare it with similar developing economies of the world. So it's not just the R&D; it was another factor which was the development of the linkages between academia and firms and developing the required skills of the labor force when China was transitioning from imitation to an innovation economy. So I think uh, these things, uh, the Pakistani government definitely doesn't have those resources. But to start with, I think uh, to pick up the thread, it would be advisable that uh, the government should uh, first start prioritizing and putting focus and emphasis on technology science and innovation as one of the main pillars for economic growth long term medium term and long term economic growth just, just as china did and maybe to start with if when we start the uh, you know we start moving towards some kind of you know completion of these industrial um, industrial component of china pakistan economic corridor we can learn from chinese uh, practices, their processes, their production methods, and then those joint ventures or other, you know, kind of collaborative approaches, which the governments, both governments, can mutually decide, they can help Pakistan build absorptive capacity as well as complementary assets besides the other inputs which are needed for uh, taking Pakistan towards that innovation path. So I leave it there, and I can take any comments and questions in the next round. Thank you. Thank you. Inshallah, come to that. Um, I think this is an opportune time to turn to Dr. Osama.
0: Atar, I think you. This is the right time for you to sum up. You've been in the government. You've been a member of the Planning Commission, in particular for innovation, and you have taken innovation initiatives with HEC and uh, um, you are you've set up this innovation foundation. So I think it's important for you to address this issue now. Athar has talked about absorptive capacity. Would you say we have the absorptive capacity in Pakistan? Peggy before mentioned that she ran seminars for mayors and senior officials and they attended and participated and learnt. We have tried, we can't get senior officials to come and listen to us. So is that our failing or is that the failing of the system here? How do we establish that? Peggy says we should imagine a new future and show it to them, but as uh, that famous movie said, "If you build it, they will come." But unfortunately, here we build it, and they don't come. So, Athar, over to you.
4: Mm. No, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Nadeemul Haq. Uh, uh, so, I mean, in the, you know, in this process, I think we are all we are all here to learn. Uh, I would just share a few a few things that I feel uh, I need to add into this mix regarding China and regarding Pakistan. But I'm Equally as much ears uh, with with what my my other three uh, panelists have to say about China because they are more experts in, you know, in the Chinese system than I am. Uh, You know, I feel to some extent um, there are some fundamental issues with the way uh, with the way Pakistan has approached innovation, science, or uh, or technology that I feel are our problems or gaps in our ability to actually translate uh, some of what happens right in Pakistan into uh, commercial exploitation or, or sort of impact on the ground. Uh, uh, you know, I used to say that, uh, you know, there's some place where I've sort of, you know, written that, uh, you know, there is, this, uh, there is this triangle of how a country, a nation spends on science technology you know innovation where uh, you know for the public sector uh, you know there is basic research at the uh, you know at the bottom applied research next uh, you know innovation and entrepreneurship on the top uh, the public sector spends majority of its money on on basic research uh, you know a little less on applied research and and you know you know sort of much less on innovation and entrepreneurship uh, in a developed economy, uh, there is an inverted triangle, which, which is basically how the private sector spends its money. And the private sector spends very little on basic research, a little bit more on applied research and a significant amount of money on commercialization and translation and, and, and these kinds of activities. In our country, uh, you know, unfortunately, most of the money that goes towards science and technology and innovation actually spent by the public sector so uh, so we have one part of the triangle probably right uh, uh, what we don't have is the other part of the triangle which uh, you know which is missing uh, with the result that uh, you know no matter what the government spends on science and technology it is unable to actually translate it into any kind of commercial uh, returns and outcomes and we you know we are aware of this you know when you talk to actually uh, you know some public sector labs uh, you know even universities across the country you find that people have done some interesting stuff it just hasn't made it out uh, to, towards commercial return because it it usually takes you know 10 times more resources uh, that goes into the r and d part to actually you know take it out and and make it commercial so i think one of the big failings of the pakistani system is the absence of business uh, or or private sector spending on you know S&T and innovation which is actually the part that even makes the uh, you know you know public investment uh, 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 you know go commercial or be translated into returns so i think that's one part the other i think uh, you know also generally i think to some extent our society somehow lacks the ability or the institutions to support individuals who are trying to go against the grain of the society and do something innovative you know i think this, uh, you know you know that's a general thing i i don't want to go beyond a certain uh, you know generalization on this but uh, you know my earliest uh, you know recollection of of what i mean uh, uh, comes from about uh, 1986 or so when I was living in Karachi, and there was this guy uh, who had actually developed a twin-engine aircraft from a Suzuki jeep. Uh, he was an engineer and a pilot in PIA. He, uh, you know, he said that he's developed this uh, uh, you know, twin-seater aircraft uh, out of a Suzuki jeep. And he said that the, you know, the total cost of this aircraft is about uh, 2 lakh rupees at the time. Uh, you know, at the time, a Suzuki Jeep was probably worth, uh, you know, a lakh rupees. He flew that aircraft in the skies. He, you know, he was covered by the television. You know, we all sort of clapped and hailed him as a hero. Uh, you know, several years later, and, you know, he was of the view that if somehow I can find somebody, some some investment, uh, you know, from the government, some, uh, some kind of support from the government or anybody in the country, uh, you know, I could create a twin seater, you know, aircraft industry in Pakistan. You know, I, so, you know, long after that, you know, his aircraft model was was placed in PIA planetarium. I went there and sat there, you know, I was inspired. I became, you know, an aeronautical engineer, you know, by looking at his example, but, you know, you know, 10, 15 years down the lane, I went to the U.S., came back and I was, you know, I tried to find this person, you know, as to what happened. And there's no, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of track of that person at all. So I was on a television show, uh, you know, six, seven years ago, and uh, I related this story. And, uh, you know, the compare there, uh, you know, made a comment. He said that, uh, uh, you know, probably the difference between him and the Wright brothers was that he was born in the wrong country. Uh, and you know this is exactly what happened. You know, uh, you know, with the Wright brothers, they they created an aircraft and they got a contract from the U.S. Army to build, uh, you know, X number of aircraft. And the rest is history. You know, we have airplanes because of their effort. And this poor chap uh, did not get anything, um, uh, and his invention uh, sort of went to waste. So I think this is another very significant barrier in our society, in our culture. I don't know. Uh, you know, somehow I'm not a sociologist uh, to be able to. You know exactly pin down uh, you know what is wrong here but I uh, you know I feel that as a society and a culture we don't support people who go against the grain and do innovative things. and I think that is also something that we need to do and so so one of the motivations for me creating the Pakistan innovation Foundation was that uh, you know I wanted to do this generational quest to create a society that rewards the innovators. Uh, uh, now I, you know I don't know how much successful I have been. Uh, you know in that but we have inspired some people to do some interesting things uh, you know i feel that as a whole uh, our problem is to to take from i think uh, what peggy said it's been a uh, you know it's been a failure of imagination uh, but also a failure of implementation uh, you know you know uh, you know often you feel and you see that whenever resources have been provided to a set of people uh, a mandate has been given to them and and there has been a good way to sort of monitor progress they have delivered so uh, you know whether you look at the agriculture revolution in the 60s or you look at our nuclear program or the missile program or whatever uh, these were instances where uh, people were given a you know a responsibility and they were able to deliver but in uh, but uh, but you know apart from these examples we have sort of failed to implement we have even failed to imitate uh, you know, as I think, you know, uh, 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 one of the things that I pointed out by my, uh, by the other panelists is that you know, one of the more interesting things about China is this transition from an imitation economy to an innovation economy, and I think we need to really understand how this transition has happened. But in order to to you know try to replicate some of these lessons, we will have to first become an imitation economy, and we aren't even. Uh, you know, you know, sort of really good at it. Uh, So, uh, so I think that is really important. I often say that we need to, uh, we need to understand China, because China is very, very different from the US, for instance, you know, I started going to China, about five, six years ago, when I became the fellow of the World World Economic Forum, and we have this, you know, annual meeting there in the, uh, uh, you know, in the summer, where I take an opportunity to uh, sort of go and spend a couple of, uh, you know, weeks in China and uh, and try to just experience uh, you know that creative energy that imagination that entrepreneurship that you see is china uh, the, that you see in china is is totally unlike uh, you know anything that you see in the west uh, you know we usually sort of benchmark innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship with the west and we see okay if the us or the silicon valley is at 100 maybe you know you know you know sort of boston is at 85 and the uk is at uh, you know 70 and sort of you know uh, uh, germany is at 80 but because we are trying to create sort of in our mind uh, you know you know imagine replicas of the western model of innovation and entrepreneurship but what you see in china is totally unlike and unreal in terms of what you see in the west and so i uh, you know i actually feel that uh, we need to have a lot more interaction with china not just because uh, you know i think china is the next uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, emerging superpower in, uh, in the area of science and technology and economics, but also that we are in this relationship with China uh, through the CPAC, that uh, uh, the, the, you know we are in this marriage where we don't know our partner really well. There aren't enough business-to-business contacts. There isn't enough understanding of uh, of how China works, how China operates, and we feel that if we don't do that, uh, uh, you, you know, in the near future. Uh, you know, maybe we'll not be able to sort of, you know, capitalize on, uh, uh, you know, on this relationship, but also we might, uh, you know, actually be, uh, uh, you know, be, uh, uh, you know, be on a disadvantage. So uh, just a couple of other things, uh, uh, in terms of trying to understand how China operates, I think it's really important to understand, you know, how government direction and directive translates into uh, and and sort of connects with the entrepreneurial energy. In China, I think you know, you know, you know, that's a piece that I think we need to really understand, not just because we are interacting with China and 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 intend to sort of you know, you know, you know, benefit from that relationship, but also because I think for our own sake we need to understand that. You know, I also feel that there are, you know, there is huge opportunity. For example, in this case, you know, in the case of this, you know, five G business for you know for countries like Pakistan, which have traditionally you know, had a very strong software sector uh, as against hardware sector. And and China has not had that uh, strong a software sector. So I think there could be a very important partnership here. There is also potentially an important partnership, uh, uh, you know, now that China, uh, you know, has talked about uh, sort of, you know, building its own chips and all this, uh, 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 you know, sort of, you know, backlash because of the, uh, of the Western response to 5G. Uh, you know, I think there's a natural partnership here for Pakistani companies to work with China and 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 start working on, on on some of the hardware and you know embedded systems areas as well. Uh, but I do feel you know at the end that the more uh, Pakistani businessmen and entrepreneurs interact with Chinese businessmen and entrepreneurs, not just the government people. I think that you know the government people interact quite a lot, but the more business to business contacts happen and the